0: You are listening to KVMR FM, Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m. My name is Claudio Mendoza and it's time for the KVMR evening news. Tonight, Racial Reckoning reports on how a witness changed his testimony after watching video footage and being provided more context. Then, Valley Public Radio covers Fresno's attempts to deal with an increase in hate crimes targeting the Asian American and Pacific Islander communities. We'll take a look at the weather before listening to Hospitality House's Needs of the Week and Bravehearts. We'll close with a commentary by Molly Fisk.
1: This is Racial Reckoning, the Arc of Justice. Here's Georgia Fort with today's update.
2: A bit of back and forth during the Derek Chauvin trial left a witness changing his testimony. BCA Special Agent James Ryerson was asked what he thought George Floyd was saying at a specific moment during his fatal arrest.
1: Did you hear that? Yes, I did. Did it appear that Mr. Floyd said I ate too many drugs?
0: Yes,
2: it did. That was Special Agent Ryerson's response when he was questioned by Defense Attorney Eric Nelson. After a short recess, the prosecution played over 15 seconds of the same video to give the witness more context.
3: Um,
2: Special Agent Ryerson then changed his testimony.
0: Having heard it in context, are you able to tell uh, what Mr. Floyd is saying there? Yes, I believe Mr. Floyd is saying, I ain't do no drugs. That's a little different than what you were asked about when you only saw a portion of the video, correct? Yes, sir.
2: The defense's stance is that George Floyd died of a drug overdose, not due to asphyxiation caused by Derek Chauvin's knee on his neck. Two more employees of the BCA took the stand, both forensic scientists. During their testimony, attorneys presented never-before-seen photos of inside George Floyd's vehicle. More than a dozen evidence samples were collected and tested, including drops of blood and drug paraphernalia. George Floyd's brother Rodney was in the courtroom Wednesday and spoke with court reporters briefly. He appeared to be emotionally drained. For the Racial Reckoning Project, I'm Georgia Fort.
1: Racial Reckoning, the Arc of Justice, is produced and supported by Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities in partnership with KMLJ Radio and the Minnesota Humanities Center. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Here in Southern California, in the city of Inglewood, 1,600 gallons of oil have leaked from a pipeline in an oil field near a state park. E&B Natural Resources, which operates the field, says the spill was caused by human error. The company also says the spill has been contained and cleanup work is underway. The 1,000-acre oil field is the largest urban oil field in the country. Residents near it have long expressed worries about health risks related to drilling and have called for petroleum production to be phased out. And in Fresno, city leaders have announced a proposal to respond to a rise in violence against the Asian and Pacific Islander communities. From Valley Public Radio, Sarith Hawk reports that many of these crimes go unreported.
3: There's only been one official Asian hate crime reported in the city of Fresno since the beginning of 2020. But that doesn't mean crimes aren't happening.
4: There is a significant underreporting of hate crimes in our community as a result of people um, being either fearful of bringing that forward or reluctant to bring that information forward to the, the police department.
3: Mayor Jerry Dyer spoke at Fresno Interdenominational Refugee Ministries, or Firm Tuesday, along with other city leaders and community organizations. He said the underreporting of crimes is linked to cultural barriers and distrust of government authorities. He said the city hopes to create an Office of Community Affairs, hiring local community liaisons.
4: I'm hopeful that we can, through this Office of Community Affairs, establish that level of trust, that liaison with folks being out in the community and partnering with the community-based organizations so that they're more willing to come forward.
3: Dyer said the office's first priority is hiring an Asian American. The office also plans to hire Latino and Punjabi representatives. Funding will be proposed as part of the next city budget starting July 1st. For the California Report, I'm Sarith Hawk in Fresno.
1: The Fresno City Council is expected to vote on that resolution later today. In Southern California, the L.A. County Board of Supervisors is forming a working group to address rising violence against Asian Americans. The group will be part of the county's existing anti-racism, diversity and inclusion initiative, which was launched last July in the midst of protests over police violence against black people.
0: Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits, stanfordhealthcare.org slash adaptingcare. Water Heaters Only, specializing in the repair and replacement of water heaters since 1968, licensed and insured, open 24 hours a day, every day. Learn more at waterheatersonly.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone, everywhere.
1: When it comes to the migrant crisis at the border, a lot of attention has been focused on Central Americans. But people from other parts of the world have come to Mexican border cities like Tijuana, seeking to try to cross to the U.S. for asylum. That includes people from Haiti. From San Diego, here's KPBS reporter Max Rivlin Nadler.
4: A community of Haitian migrants has been in Tijuana for nearly a decade, fleeing a devastating earthquake, hurricanes, financial collapse, and now deep political instability and violence as an unpopular president tries to hold on to power in Port-au-Prince. Many Haitians are stuck in Tijuana, fearful that by crossing the border, they'll be sent right back to Haiti, but unable to make a life for themselves in Mexico. When a migrant camp was established in February at the El Chaparral Port of Entry in Tijuana, hundreds of Haitians set up tents, hoping that they would soon be allowed to declare asylum in the U.S. Dorleon Ito was one of them. He'd been living in Tijuana for a year. He said that Haiti is his country and that he loves it, but it wasn't possible to stay there. There were too many criminals with nothing to do. Ido had spent five years working in Chile, but the discrimination there was intense. He was trying to get into the United States, even though he feared possibly being returned to Haiti. He said if they deport him, he wouldn't live in Haiti. He doesn't have anything there. He wouldn't have the money to leave though he's afraid. If he gets sent there, he's worried he'll get killed. A rule known as Title 42 bars the entry of any asylum seekers into the US during the COVID-19 pandemic. Border Patrol has been immediately sending border crossers back to Mexico or their countries. Since the beginning of the Biden administration, however, more children, families and single adults have been able to enter the US and continue their asylum claims from inside the United States and Interior Immigration Enforcement has been scaled back. But that hasn't held true for Haitian migrants. The Biden administration has removed over 1,200 Haitians from the United States. That's more than during all of Trump's final fiscal year in office. Gurlene Joseph is the executive director of the Haitian Bridge Alliance. Since 2016, her organization has advocated for Haitians trying to avoid deportation to an unstable and dangerous country
3: is criminal for both the United States and Haiti to agree to send and receive people. When, when they land in Haiti, those people go in hiding.
4: Joseph led a group of Haitian Americans down to Tijuana last month, in an effort to connect with the Haitian asylum seekers and make sure they're safe. What they found wasn't reassuring. The Haitians were leaving the camp because they felt discriminated against by the Central American migrants. Christian Nestor is a Haitian American lawyer, who works with Haitian Bridge Alliance. He says that many Haitians have gone broke in Mexico. A lot
0: of Haitians are stuck here and their workers' authorization has expired. So they don't really have any way to make any money and they're stuck here.
4: He doesn't believe that the treatment of Haitians in the American immigration system or the role that the U.S. has played in supporting the current regime in Haiti has deterred anyone from coming to the U.S. Many Haitians have jumped the border fence in recent weeks tired of the racism and willing to risk being returned to Haiti. Asking around the camp late last month, Dorleon Ito was nowhere to be found. Jean-Claude Jean is still holding out hope. He's one of the last Haitians in the migrant encampment at El Chaparral. But even his patience is wearing thin. He says he'll stay in Tijuana another two or three weeks only, then he'll cross. Whatever happens to him, he'll have to accept it. He doesn't want to live the way he's had to live here. For The California Report, I'm Max Rivlin-Nadler in Tijuana.
1: And that is The California Report for Thursday, April 8th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks for listening. And have a great day.
0: The National Weather Service is forecasting sunny skies for our entire listening area. In Nevada City and Grass Valley, tonight, clear, with a low around 43. Tomorrow, sunny, with a high near 68. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, mostly clear, with a low around 29. Tomorrow, sunny, with a high near 58. And for the Valley, Sacramento and Woodland, tonight, clear, with a low around 46. Tomorrow, you guessed it, sunny with a high near 76. Next, we'll listen to Hospitality House's Needs of the Week and Braveheart's.
5: I'm Christina Karian, Marketing and Development Specialist at Hospitality House and the needs of the shelter for this week are PPE masks and gloves, please keep donating these, blankets, twin size, new pillows, silverware, bottled water, hand warmers, travel bags, backpacks, duffel bags, brushes, combs and hair ties toilet paper, paper towels, men's jeans sizes 30 to 36, women's jeans sizes 4 to 12, men and women's shorts, men and women's undershirts, men and women's tank tops, women's underwear sizes small, medium and large, men's pajama pants, women's loungewear lightweight, women's casual summer dresses, men's tennis shoes sizes 10 to 12, Women's tennis shoe sizes 7 to 9. Ensure and boost drinks for a guest undergoing chemo and radiation treatments. Please drop off urgent items or mail them to Utah's place located in Brunswick Basin past the DMV at 1262 Sutton Way in Grass Valley. For a text receipt, please ring the doorbell and wait for someone to come outside to assist you. We greatly appreciate the community's help at such times of uncertainty. In the words of Utah Phillips, if we all stick together, we'll all get what we need. Thank you.
2: Welcome to this edition of Brave Bravehearts,
6: where we hope to increase your awareness and understanding of what homelessness looks like and some of the many organizations working on solutions to improve the homeless crisis.
2: We are your hosts, William Wallace
6: and Betty Louise,
2: and these are the Bravehearts.
6: Following excerpt is from Julie Lang, who has been a mental health professional here in Nevada County for over 20 years, and she has her own experience working with the homeless population.
7: I just interviewed a, a man at the jail who had seven kids. He had a house in like Lake Wildwood. He ended up breaking his back and losing his job. And then over time, he lost his wife and went through a divorce and then has had you know, multiple injuries doing strange odd jobs, like a big truck or something fell on his face. He lost his teeth. He feels like he's really self-conscious because people look at him and judge him and automatically think, oh, he's a methamphetamine addict, Mm. which is also a judgment. Methamphetamine-addicted people are also human and have their story as well.
6: What do you do for these people? Like, how do you support these folks that is just—and we've talked with a few, too. It's just one thing after another that leads them into these horrible situations. That's a good question. The biggest
7: thing that I do, I think, is listen, and I have them tell me their story, and I listen as deeply as possible and help them be seen and feel a relatedness, like somebody is caring to find out who they are and have the experience, if possible, to not have a sense of being judged for it. Many of these people are very ashamed, and they're Wearing a badge of shame because they look different from other people. They're not clean. They can't get the right clothes. They are not accessing dental services, and they feel ashamed. Mm -hmm. And so they feel people are going to look down on them, and they're automatically defensive and often not trusting. If they go in for medical treatment, often they're accused of drug-seeking. Mm-hmm. Some have addiction problems, some do not. You just can't label them.
6: Yeah. They're as different as any other unique human being. How would you advise people that encounter mentally unstable homeless people and are afraid?
7: I would tell them just to note their fear, but to take a breath and to do their best to treat those people as if they were a family member, meaning with respect and a calm voice. I think that the biggest thing is not acting abruptly being polite and kind just showing a little kindness.
6: It's simple, isn't it?
7: Yeah, it's it is very simple. Um, Just our humanness and connecting is is not that difficult, but our judgments are what keep us separate. And our judgments are usually what causes fear. You know, I'm reflecting when you asked like, what changes have I seen I think one thing I've seen is there's a bigger group of young homeless. Mm
5: -hmm.
7: And I I think back to the hobos back in the Great Depression. But we have a huge percentage of young people on the streets, often substance using. Not always is that how they got there, but they often end up using substances. But there's a huge amount of young homeless people. And I think that's very disturbing. They don't have a sense of a place to call home. They don't have a sense of hope for a future. And a lot of them are repeatedly getting in jail. I think of a young man who was in jail for stealing cake. He was behind Rayleigh's and he stole cake to eat. And he was very distraught. He, He did want to kill himself because he was just so sick of being miserable and cold. And he didn't know how to go up from there. And he had grown up in a a small trailer out in North San Juan in a very poverty-stricken area. He talked about not, you know, having shoes that fit to go to school and wearing the same clothes. And so the family didn't have resources, and he grew up with very little and then was on his own as a very young teenager. And I think he was maybe 19 and just really desperate to... Find a different way, but feeling very hopeless about it.
2: Thank you for joining us today. Our hope is this segment has opened your heart and mind. Be well
1: and be kind.
6: This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Please visit calhum.org.
0: Here's Molly Fisk. Molly Fisk, Observations
8: from a Working Poet. April is National Poetry Month, and this week I'm in the middle of doing three readings in a row. Tuesday night it was about my latest book, California Fire and Water, a climate crisis anthology, and wasn't really a reading, but more of a talk about how poetry can help us heal from so many things and also help us manage our fear. The second, last night, I was one of five Nevada County women poets reading as part of the Sierra Poetry Festival. We've done this every year for the five years of the festival, and especially in this crazy sequestered COVID year, it was heartening to see my fellow poets in their little squares on my laptop and hear their new work. Everyone's hair was longer. Most of the festival takes place this weekend on Zoom, and the lineup is spectacular. If you like poetry, you should check it out. org has the details. Tonight, just as you are listening to this commentary, I'm going to be zooming down to San Francisco, where I'm part of their One City, One Book celebration, reading with another five poets in support of this year's book, Chanel Miller's Know My Name. If you don't know her name, think Rape. Think Stanford a couple of years ago. Think general outrage. And if those aren't enough clues, please unfriend me on social media. I have no patience anymore for people who ignore the ongoing fight against male privilege and sexual assault in this century. I'll be reading poems tonight about my own experience of childhood sexual assault, the family kind, and that's your trigger warning if you need one and we're planning to listen. I'm pretty sure the other readers have similar subject matter, And as the organizer, Kim Shuck, says, this reading is going to raise the rafters. April is National Poetry Month and also National Child Abuse Prevention Month. It's kind of my month altogether. Here's a poem I won't be reading tonight that is radio-friendly and even mentions God, which is a little strange since I don't actually technically believe in God. I believe in trees. But God sneaks into my poems now and then. Maybe just to prove he or she is all-powerful and me being a lapsed Unitarian isn't going to change that. In any case, remember that I write about many things, including our landscape here in the foothills, and as well as being angry about unfairness and the damage people do to each other, I also, at the same time, truly, 24-7, love the world. God speaks to the rope swings of summer. In his gentlest voice, reminding them about change, about fallow fields and the quiet everything needs to grow stronger at facing life and death, uncertainty, joy, obstruction. This one, hanging straight from its branch over Oregon Creek, is listening. He mentions the way opposing twists will hold each other longer and how knots keep children's feet from slipping. Three-ply, four, hemp or nylon— it doesn't matter. The creek sparkles on. Wood smoke dilutes the sky's clear blue. A madrone leaf slowly spins downstream, oblivious and holy. This would be a good time to remind you that the opinions expressed here are not those of the radio station, its staff, board of directors, underwriters, volunteers, or listeners, and are solely put forth by the commentator, in this case me, Molly Fisk.
0: That's our newscast for tonight, April 8, 2021. We get support from Milkman Toner Company, providing local, hometown service for network printers, copiers, and scanners. Carrying environmentally safe, remanufactured toner cartridges with printer support. Serving Northern California counties, also San Francisco to Lake Tahoe milkmancompany.com and Patch Food Co-op focused on sustainability with electric vehicle charging stations and power generated by the sun 290 Sierra College Drive in Grass Valley or op. coming up next is the Climate Report with Martin Webb and at 7 it's Democracy Now with Amy Goodman I'm Claudio Mendoza. Thanks for listening, and have a good evening.